Warning, the podcast you're about to listen to may contain graphic descriptions of violent assaults, murder, and adult language. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Murder Police Podcast, Forensic Pathology with Dr. Greg Davis, Part 1 of 3. I'm Wendy. And I'm David. Welcome to the Murder Police Podcast. David, why don't you tell us what we can expect on this podcast with Dr. Greg Davis? This is going to be interesting for the people that really want to get educated in the field. We're going to have a three-part miniseries where we actually went to University of Kentucky in the pathology department and interviewed Dr. Greg Davis there. Greg and I go back a long way. When I was in homicide, he was one of the medical examiners in Frankfort, Kentucky. One of the things I always thought about and why I wanted to interview him for the podcast so much is that like the other medical examiners, when you stood at that autopsy table with them, they were educators. So you're not talking about somebody that just goes and does a a process and then kind of gives you a report or anything. The entire step of the way, Greg and the others would tell you what they were doing, why they were doing it, and they would pull you over to the table to show you what they were seeing to describe it. So I felt like if we could get him on the podcast, he would come off as an educator, and he did. So what we're going to hear from Greg is you'll get to hear the role of what a forensic pathologist, think medical examiner, and autopsies, and plus they do much more, is. And we'll also hear Greg's journey and how he got to the field. And he'll take that and translate it into what he thinks people need to know if they're interested in getting into the field, too, because, he's again, he's an educator now. Big thing, too, is that Greg is going to take it way past movies and television, like we usually try to do, and talk about the emotional impacts of working in forensics pathology. And I will say this, and we'll uh, we'll key it during the show, and I'll have some show notes, but Dr. Greg Davis actually has his own podcast. It's called Dr. Greg Davis on Medicine. It can be found at WUKY on the internet and all the major platforms, but I'll put links on the show notes for people to listen to it. It's really interesting. They're like five to eight-minute segments about anything to do with medicine, a really good source to listen to. So with that, let's jump in and and get into part one, and then the listeners can download two and three when they're available. All right. Sounds good. Hello, and welcome to Murder Police Podcast. Today, we are interviewing Dr. Greg Davis with UK and my husband, David Lyons. Greg, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much, Wendy. Appreciate it. Thank you for taking your time to, to talk with us. David, how are you doing today? Doing good. Really excited to, to be around Greg. It's been a couple years since we've seen each other and many more years since we worked together. So I'm excited to get caught up a little I bit. I am as well, David. Well, Greg, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do and who you are? I am a faculty member here at the UK University of Kentucky College of Medicine. I'm a professor of pathology and laboratory medicine. I'm associate director of the UK Healthcare Autopsy Service and I am director of the Division of Forensic Consultation Services for the Department of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine. Mm, I'm not going to complain about being busy anymore. Yeah, <laughs> I don't sure. think you should. No. Mm-mm. Well, uh, what kind of personal background, you, what you're willing to share about uh, things that made you tick and get interested in this, maybe? Well, I, I guess I should start with saying I, I was 
born and, and raised the early part of my life in East Tennessee and came to the University of Kentucky at age 17 as a, a college freshman, fully intending as an English major to go back to East Tennessee or Eastern Kentucky and teach high school English. That was my dream. And along the way, I started volunteering and then got a paid job at the old emergency department at UK and quickly sort of caught the medical bug. And one day, one of the, the head nurses and one of the resident physicians told me I should apply to medical school. And I've never been overburdened with self-confidence. And my immediate response was, uh, I'm not smart enough to be a doctor. And I still remember the, the nurse burst out laughing and said, honey, you don't really have to be that smart. You just got to work really, really hard. You know, you, you, you certainly have to have a, a, a level of, of st studiousness, but uh, she was also right about just applying yourself a, a lot over the years. So I got interested in medicine and was at that point going to be a, like a lot of entering medical students. I thought I was going to be a primary care physician uh, in Kentucky or Tennessee, quickly got got the bug of pathology. It was a specialty that I wasn't even aware of. Uh, we had a wonderful course director, and he really imbued us with understanding that pathology is a specialty in medicine that deals with the diagnosis of human disease in any form, whether we're talking gunshot wound, cancer, inflammation, congenital defect. It's a pathologist of some sort who makes that ultimate diagnosis and either works with fellow healthcare providers or the criminal justice system to uh, get that information across to the folks that need to hear it. So uh, he, he really in, inspired me. I was super squeamish as a medical student at the University of Tennessee in Memphis before I did my residency training back here in Kentucky when we worked on our gross anatomy cadavers uh, in anatomy lab. I was the guy who stood five feet back and read to my colleague out of the manual and and he did the dissection and now he's a geriatric psychiatrist in Tennessee and I'm a forensic pathologist so go figure that's unreal I mean I'll tell you what it and that was educational to me because when I think of pathology I think strictly of diseases viruses flu cancers exactly and and I never associated it with the uh, like physical violence or anything like that so that's interesting so uh, pathology is divided into two great camps as a specialty there's anatomic pathology think of anatomy what you can see with your naked eye or under the microscope so there's three main branches of anatomic surgical pathology if you've ever had a biopsy a colon biopsy a skin biopsy we're the folks that read that and make a diagnosis and let your clinical doctor know what's going on. Cytopathology, the study of cells. So think pap smears, fine needle aspiration biopsies, body fluids to make sure there's not cancer cells in there. That's cytopathology. And then autopsy pathology, which is an examination of a deceased person to more fully understand whatever clinical diagnosis they may have had during life to discover if uh, a crime has been committed, either by omission or commission, you know, neglect or uh, a positive act on the part of another person. And then there's clinical pathology. Think uh, you were talking about Petri dishes, Wendy. Um, microbiology, the blood bank, clinical chemistry, which includes clinical toxicology, the study of drugs, medicines, poisons, and man. That's all clinical pathology. And 
as we'll probably discuss, is inextricably bound also with forensic pathology, which is a subspecialty of pathology that is the application of medical and scientific principles to the investigation of sudden, unexpected, unusual, or violent death. It's interesting. Uh, I, I hope we get a chance to chat about it. It's the one medical specialty uh, in the United States where you actually practice it differently depending on where you are in the country. You know, if I'm a OBGYN, I'm going to deliver a baby the same in New York City as I do in Lexington. But uh, forensic pathology and death investigation, the laws governing what we do and how we do it are very different. And I've practiced in different states, and it's, it's really fun and unusual. Why do you think that is, that it varies so vastly from one state to another? We have a really patchwork quilt of death investigation systems in the United States. Some uh, states and counties have coroners who are elected officials who may or may not have medical training. And here in Kentucky, we're super blessed that our coroners, regardless of their background, are trained in death investigation before they're ever sworn in with that same constitutional oath that I took when I became a notary public. Um, but before they're ever sworn in, they have to go to Eastern Kentucky University's Department of Criminal Justice training for intensive death investigation training. Other states, like my original home state of Tennessee, the only requirement to be a, what's called a county medical examiner, analogous to a county coroner here, is that you have an MD or a DO, that you be a physician, which looks really good on paper, but we don't get any death investigation training in medical school. So the, the irony is our lay coroners in Kentucky, for the most part, do a much better job than, let's say, when I was at Wake Forest University in North Carolina. They have a very similar system to Tennessee. Most of the county death investigators are physicians, but they're untrained. So rhetorical question, who would you rather have doing a death investigation that you're working on, a coroner who may be a funeral director but has a lot of experience um, with real training or a uh, family doctor in an outlying county who's got 60 patients in her waiting room and all of a sudden gets a call out to a potential crime scene, you, you can see already that you're probably going to get more bang for your buck, as it were, with that county coroner. Right. And that's interesting because I think the first thing I used to think of is that uh, conflict of interest that could exist. If I own a funeral home, I'm drumming up business while I'm picking them up. I mean, it's so, but it's neat. I, I'd never considered it, but you're right. That practical experience of going to death after death after death would mean a lot more. Well, and the, the funeral director, so Kentucky coroners are everything from retired law enforcement officers, homemakers, nurses, doctors, funeral directors. The, the funeral directors in Kentucky who are coroners, you know, they can't obviously suggest their own funeral home to the family. That would be a conflict of interest. But I'll give you a comparison and contrast between Kentucky and, and North Carolina, where I, I worked for a while. A typical call I would get in Kentucky, let's say from, um, can I mention names? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wonderful death investigator, uh, firefighter, law enforcement officer, funeral director, and coroner in Round County, a fellow named John Northcutt. Typical call I would get from John is, uh, hi, Greg, I've got a 37-year-old white male with a past history of hypertension, diabetes, and smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. Uh, he was last known alive here. He was found dead here. Normally, I would just sign the case out without autopsy. 
due to natural disease, but he's had a running feud with a neighbor. And his wife tells me that the the back door to the house was jimmied in last night. And I don't see any marks on him, but just for everybody's peace of mind, can we run the body to Frankfurt and have you do an autopsy and, and reassure us that everything's okay? So that's a typical Kentucky call. Typical North Carolina call I might get. And, and again, I hate to generalize, but uh, Dr. Davis, this is uh, Dr. Smith from up in Mount Airy. Uh, I've got this dead body in my ER. I need to get it to you. Oh, okay, doctor. Well, can you tell me a little bit? No, I don't have time for this. Uh, I've got a bunch of patients to see. I'm just going to have the body transported. You take care of it. Now, again, as a citizen, which system would you rather be under? It, it's, you know, I made a lot of wonderful connections in North Carolina. I had a wonderful time there. I loved the people I was working with, but I jumped at the chance after five years to come back to Kentucky now 25 years ago because I love the system that I was trained in. And, you know, you, over time, you get to know the coroners, you get to know the law enforcement officers, the defense attorneys, the prosecuting attorneys, the judges. And that's, that's really where if we're going to talk fun and work and joy and work, it's not doing a dissection of a deceased person. It's those connections I've made, such as with y'all. I mean, I never would have met y'all, but for the fact that of uh, the work we are engaged in. Yeah, you uh, in answering that, too, with that contrast you made, I think that helps people because a lot of people get frustrated with how the decision whether the autopsy is made or not. And uh, especially in the true crime world, you'll, you'll hear a lot of questioning as well. They didn't or they went straight to cremation. And, and of course, we can't answer every case that comes up, but that's a real good description of how that goes. Real good description. You know, David, it's, it's really funny. In the 35 years I've been doing this, uh, and I don't know if this is due to popular television shows uh, or what, but the biggest objection I used to hear when I first got started was, what do you mean you're going to do an autopsy? We don't want you to. And now the biggest objection we often hear is, what do you mean you're not going to do an autopsy? We want you to do one. And I really don't know why there's been that that shift. But the, the coroner in Kentucky has complete discretion when she is called to a scene as to whether an autopsy is done. Now, under Kentucky law, they have to do an investigation in a certain set of circumstances. Essentially, and this is true nationwide, if the death is thought to be not natural, a homicide, suicide, an accident, undetermined, just plain weird, the coroner is going to get involved. And under law, they have to do what's called a post-mortem examination. But that can be anything from just eyeballing the body and taking some pictures up to and including sending the body to, in Kentucky, Frankfurt, Fort Thomas, Louisville, or Madisonville, depending on where you are in the state, um, for an autopsy. It's There's no death that requires that an autopsy be done in Kentucky. That's not true in some other states where they maybe uh, have their hands bound to, to actually order an autopsy in certain circumstances. Interesting. Interesting. That, that'll cl- uh, clarify a lot for a lot of listeners, for sure, on how that works. So if that state medical examiner requires that to be done, as you said, if, if it's suspicious circumstances, do you all ever have family who kick back and say, no, we don't want that done? We don't, we don't believe in that. Maybe it's a religious type thing or they just don't want it done. Have you ever experienced that of you need to do it and they're saying, no, I don't want to do that? 
Sure. And, and I want to clarify one thing, Wendy. It's, it's not the medical examiner who, who mandates that the autopsy be done. It's, it's the discretion of the coroner. So we have a okay. hybrid system in Kentucky where the coroner does the death investigation and then the medical examiner, which is synonymous in Kentucky with forensic pathologist. It, that word medical examiner may mean different things in different states, but in Kentucky, it means the same thing as a forensic pathologist, an individual who's gone to four years of medical school, a minimum of four years of residency training after medical school in general pathology, and then a year of fellowship or subspecialty training in forensic pathology. And at that point, if your training director says you're okay to practice, then you're actually allowed to sit for the board exams to become what's called a board certified anatomic clinical and forensic pathologist. So we have really good ones here in Kentucky. And so we, in that capacity as forensic pathologists, act as a consultant to the coroner. So we may get a call at three in the morning from Wendy, who's the coroner in County X, saying, hey, I've got this death. Do you think it's my jurisdiction? Uh, yes or no. And if yes, do you think it needs an autopsy? And we'll work together to come to that that decision. And yeah, so so in answer to your question about if families push back, I want to compare and contrast two different types of autopsies. There's the hospital autopsy where the legal next of kin gives permission, usually a spouse or an adult child or a sibling. Uh, if the clinical team or the family's just unsure about what happened, the family or the physicians may request an autopsy. And in those cases, we can only do what the family says we can do. Like, uh, we want you to do a chest-only autopsy because we think you had a heart attack or a head-only autopsy because we want to diagnose Alzheimer's disease. But we can't go beyond the bounds of what the family tells us to do. That's a bright line. As opposed to a medical examiner coroner autopsy where the coroner under KRS 72, Kentucky law, authorizes us to do an autopsy. And at that point, we have complete discretion to do, we can do an external only and draw blood for toxicology. We can do a directed exam where we open the body, but don't take the organs out. Or we can do a complete autopsy where through two major incisions, one over the top of the scalp and one called a Y incision that goes from the shoulder to the breastbone to the pubic bone, we can look at the contents of the head, neck, chest, abdomen, and pelvis and get bodily fluids to test for toxicology, get pieces of tissue to look at under the microscope to make a diagnosis. But that's completely at the discretion of the coroner and ME. And that may sound like it's kind of harsh, like what if a family objects? But the law was written in such a way as to recognize that sometimes there's a conflict of interest between the family's wishes and the overarching wishes of the state. For example, if a spouse shoots a spouse and then says, nope, wait, you can't do an autopsy because I don't want you to, or it's against my religion, that's an obvious conflict of interest. Now, in, in cases that aren't quite that blatant, we will work with families because there's no Christian faith stream that, that is against the autopsy, but there are some Islam uh, faith streams and some Jewish faith streams that either feel pretty sketchy about it or downright against it. And we will sit down with those families and work with them as best we can to work out a mutual solution. So, for instance, in Jewish tradition and Muslim tradition, a lot of times the body should be buried by sundown the day after death. So instead of, 
you know, our regular 7 a.m. to 5 p.m., we may come in at 3 in the morning and do an autopsy. We may make it more goal-directed, meaning uh, if the person was shot in the chest, maybe we won't open the head if the family doesn't want us to. If they want to have a representative present at autopsy, such as a faith leader who's a nurse or a physician, we, we would warmly invite them to be there just to communicate to the family that we don't desecrate bodies, we don't show them disrespect. I, I would say from a frankly, from a philosophical or spiritual perspective, that we're actually honoring the dead by doing a good autopsy and uh, getting the information to the interested parties that need it, whether that interested party is a, a grieving spouse or children, prosecuting attorneys, defense attorneys, homicide detective. To me, that's honoring that person. Real quick, you've talked a lot about different collaborations, and I wanted to focus on something for the listeners that they may not understand is that here in Kentucky with regard to the coroner and a death scene investigation is that the coroner actually owns that scene. A lot of people see the police. They see the homicide unit there, but that's at the coroner's request just like when they communicate with you. And and I think it speaks a lot to the fact of how important that relationship is between a police department and the coroner's office because if that ever falls apart, that can be a problem. But it's one of those things that I've always experienced in Fayette County to where people – it's like everybody always knew what their limitations were or what their capabilities were and got together on that. And it was – from the outside, it looks like, okay, the police roll up on these. But it's neat to understand that, that the coroner actually controls that scene. of a lion forces Savannah to choose if she'll save her classmates or be the next featured story on the Murder Police podcast. Hi, I'm Christine Meyer, author of The Too Tall Giraffe, a children's book about looking different, fitting in, and finding your superpower. After 20 years with the NYPD, I now help kids embrace their differences, fit in, or not, and find their superpowers. You can learn more at thetwotallgiraffe.com. And I think, too, David, like a lot of things in life, reality is the exact opposite of what we see on TV. TV loves conflict. And so the coroner or the medical examiner and the police – are always engaged, and even the police within themselves, you know, are always engaged in these turf wars. And it's my scene, darn it, and and th- that sort of thing. And I think I've seen that maybe once in 35 years, and that definitely wasn't was not here in Kentucky. There's this sense of mutual cooperation, and you know, I, I think whether you're a, a law enforcement officer, a physician, an attorney, or just engaged in a personal relationship. My definition of competence is knowing what you don't know and acting accordingly. And so what I teach my trainees is just because you got an MD or a DO after your name, you know, that that cop who's been working for 25 years is going to be able to educate you just like you can educate her about medical things. And so the most, if you will, most gratifying scenes that I've ever been to is where there's that mutuality, where... Law enforcement folks, by the nature of their training, are going to see things I don't see. By nature of my medical training, I'm going to see things they might not see. And then we put those together in a synergy, in a mutual cooperation. 
really is is sweet. I mean, when you hit that sweet spot of an investigation where you figure it out because of that that mutual trust and and security. I, I I had several experiences when I first came back to Kentucky where I went to scenes here in Fayette County and in some surrounding counties and I could tell I was being evaluated. Like, okay, is this guy okay? Is he going to be an arrogant doctor? Is he going to be an okay guy? And I think we quickly came to the realization that we were okay for one another. I I will tell you the I've only in my career had two conflicts with either a police officer or a prosecutor. And those were very quickly resolved. And I don't know if you want me to tell you about them, but we'd love to hear. Uh, Just no names, maybe. <laughs> oh, no names, no names. There was there was one in uh, a county of North Carolina where I gave a prosecutor and a, a law enforcement officer some information that did not fit their perception of the case. And the prosecutor said probably one of the most chilling things to me I've ever heard in my career. He said, but I thought you were on our side. And if there's one point I want to get across to your listeners, it's we're not for you and we're not again you. Um, we are not there for prosecutors. We are not there for law enforcement. We are not there for defense attorneys. We're there for all of them, but none of them in the sense that our true constituent is the trier of fact, the jury or the judge. And, and, you know, damn the torpedoes if the information that we give you as a law enforcement officer or as a defense attorney doesn't fit your perception of a case. That's our job is not to fit the facts to your case. Our job is to educate you and ultimately the trier of fact as to what is consistent or not consistent with your theory. So a lot of what I do when I go to court is the prosecutor over here says, Dr. Davis, we think it happened this way. And I say, well, yeah, based on the the findings at autopsy, it's perfectly consistent with happening that way. And then the defense attorney will come up on cross and she'll say, well, wait a minute, doctor, our theory is it happened this way. And a good proportion of the time I'll say, well, yeah, the findings are equally consistent. I mean, take a gunshot wound of intermediate range, for instance, Th that in and of itself is consistent with a homicide or a suicide, or even in rare instances, an accident. We're not going to make that diagnosis of manner of death at the autopsy table without input from law enforcement, coroner, witnesses, etc. The only other conflict I got into, and with apologies to your um, uh, listeners who are law enforcement officers, it was a, a homicide detective I'd never met, and this was in another state. And I, I will preface this, I'll build a foundation with, I hate stereotypes, right? Cops are humans, doctors are humans, coroners are humans. So, uh, and, and don't get me wrong, we love to joke with one another, never at the expense of the deceased person because they can't fight back. But just I know from personal experience with, with you, David, that, that there's a lot of good-natured ribbon uh, between folks that goes on, and it's part of what keeps us human and sane in a, in a really, at times, hostile environment. But my first encounter with this one homicide detective who I'd never met, and it would have been different if I'd known him, I walk into the autopsy suite at seven in the morning and he says, are you the cutter? And my response was, are you the pig? And, oh. and I saw the look on his face and I burst out laughing and I said, that's how what you said sounded to me. So we're going to start over and you're going to say, 
are you the pathologist? And I'm going to say, are you the case officer? I said, and if I came across as a jerk, I apologize. Ask your peers. I'm a pretty nice guy. But I absolutely despise the term cutter because I think it's offensive not to me. I don't care about me. It's offensive to the deceased. We are not cutting them. We are examining them. Words matter. And I would never want a family member to think, well, he cut on my loved one. I would rather them say he did a detailed examination so we could get the best answers we could get. So th- those are the only two. Conflict. Was it downhill from there or did you, or did we start again and it got better or did it just keep going downhill? We did it. No, we started over. And I, I said, I said, if you treat me and the, um, the deceased with just a modicum of respect, I said, I'll be your best friend. Uh, you know, we'll, and we'll get along great. And I think he probably vetted me with his colleagues, like, who's this jerk Davis? And they were all like, he's not a jerk. What's going on? What happened? I think the, the only other conflict I ever got into in another state was um, when there was an accident where young teenage mom and dad were trying to lull a colicky baby to sleep. And they had heard that if you put uh, an instrument that causes white noise in the bedroom, it'll lull the baby to sleep, like a white noise machine that grown-ups use to sleep. Well, these poor kids, they they didn't mean badly, but they were dumber in a box of hammers, and they put a hairdryer, a handheld hairdryer, in the bassinet with the baby. And I guess it worked for a night or two until the second or third night the, the muzzle of the hairdryer tipped over and blew hot air on this baby. And I think caused him to die very quickly of hyperthermia. But because it had run for, for several hours, the baby had what are called postmortem burns, burns that weren't caused during life, but, but after death. And the prosecutor in this, this county in another state really wanted me to make a determination of homicide. And I called the death an accident. I said there was no intent to harm. There was no wanton disregard for human life, things that we tend to take into account when we call something a homicide versus an accident. It's the only time in my career somebody's yelled at me. For whatever reason, she just really wanted this to be a homicide so she could prosecute these kids for murder. And and I testified in front of the grand jury that, you know, in my opinion, it was an accident. Obviously, you grand jurors need to do what you think is right, but um, um, but it, I don't think they returned uh, an indictment on this this poor family. Yeah, I think uh, for me, a red flag in, in my career was uh, whenever kids were involved. It was just like, uh, you know, if you throw a wrench in the cogs to make time, you go get the second wrench because the emotions fly so high. And I used to watch that. I, w- I remember I went to one one time where we had a uh, likely a Sid's death, but... There was a mark on the baby that people, some people were assuming was a grill fork. And I think you call them uh, a postmortem artifact where some, it was just simply as soon as the baby was rolled over for a while, that went away. But I remember uh, watching that and throwing water on that really fast um, because those rushes to judgment will kill you every time. There is a saying in forensics that you have to be careful about letting the tail wag, the emotional tail wag the rational dog. And we all get upset when kids are involved. Uh, you know, that uh, people that are in positions of disempowerment, children, elder abuse and neglect, 
I mean, these are the things that rightfully anger us. But when you go into the autopsy suite, when you're at the scene, you have to, there's a um, psychological defense, but also a good tool of disconnecting your emotional part. I mean, I've been to scenes where relatively young, inexperienced officers or medical personnel are just yelling and screaming and cussing because they're so angry that that something happened. And I always take them aside and say, I get it. You're absolutely right. But you have a job to do right now. And your judgment is clouded while you're acting in such a fashion. And I can't tell you to feel in a certain way. But if you need to go out, take a few breaths, collect yourself so that you can come back in here and do your job, you know, that's what you need to do. Interesting fallout of that, that kid case that I just mentioned. I got a call from a news reporter that, that I knew real well and, and liked. And he uh, woke me up out of a sound sleep. And he said, Greg, you know, why did you determine that that death was an accident, not a homicide? And, and I said one of the dumbest things I've ever said in my career. And thank goodness this guy gave me a mulligan and didn't print it. I said, well, as far as I can tell, stupidity is not a crime in this state implying that the parents were were stupid but not malevolent and uh, and then I was fully awake and realized what I just said to a major newspaper reporter and I said I said you know if you print that I'll probably find a way of never speaking to you again and he goes Greg everybody deserves a mulligan I'm going to give you one on that one but there's some truth in that not that people are stupid but I think sometimes people forget that again you started out we're humans and not everything works out perfect. And, and I think that's why you have to have a mindset when you approach these things is that uh, not everything is malicious. Not everything is, is directed at people and intentional. I got used to that after a while. And that frustrated people. Well, you know, David, it's, I'm glad you brought that up because I actually, and I would say this even if we weren't chatting together, I cite you as an example of somebody who taught me a very important lesson relatively early in my career. I think I'd been a medical examiner for about five years, and you and I were working a homicide together, and I muttered some things under my breath and cussing angry about a, a particular case, and I can't even remember but you said, well, let me give you some perspective on this case, because you knew both the victim and the, the perpetrator. And essentially, you humanized the perpetrator for me in this case, because you knew who they were. You knew some of the circumstances. And I, I remember um, full confession kind of tearing up behind my mask and thinking, well, isn't this ironic? The law enforcement officers teaching the doctors to have a little sympathy for human beings. And that's a little role reversal, isn't it? But not really. I mean, that's what good cops and good docs do is they recognize people as humans. But I've always talked about you in, in that particular case. Well, thanks. And I, I think, too, that it comes back to, again, what TV and movies. I've always said they tear us up and they tear up your profession, too, because when you talked about how uh, we're not against you or for you, I, th I might have reversed that. But if you look at most TV shows, is that all people see when they see forensic people is slamming into a case. It's a head-on full freight train without tapping the brakes, even in Dexter, where he obviously had a conflict of interest. Love Dexter. Yeah, that's her favorite. <laughs> that's a, that's she, a great show. She can't get enough Love of it. Love Dexter. And, uh, but, it, but, you know, there again, we, we, we battle that. And the other thing, too, is that uh, for policing, for example— for decades, ever since you could put anything on film or record it, it's always put police in that hard light of, of uh, not having a heart, not understanding, being very tunnel visioned and everything. And I've met a few 
I've met a few. There's no doubt about that. But in reality, that job teaches you that. And, and again, the real frustration is on the outside where people see a, a really horrific car crash. And right now, more than ever on social media, they should go to prison the rest of their life. That, well, you don't have enough facts to determine that. And, you know, that same logic could be applied to you or a family member tomorrow, that if we don't forget people just sometimes make, make mistakes. And sometimes those mistakes, yeah, they're tragic. But you have to consider that stuff when you're dealing with these people. Oh, absolutely. It's it's something that that we learn, I think, as uh, as physicians, and, and you know, living in this borderland between um, the criminal justice system and medicine. That's something that that I've seen over the last thirty five years. That what oftentimes when we're young and dumb, we think, okay, everything is black and white, and we start to see nuance with experience. That you know, certain things are always wrong, of course, and and need to come to the attention of criminal justice systems. But you also see nuance and shades of gray where once you thought things were black and white. I mean, there are so many things I think of the way I was brought up in the 60s in East Tennessee. You know, my mom would be charged with child neglect now. And I think of it as an idyllic childhood. They they let me wander in the woods with my dog and and, you know, come back home when Either I'm hollering or sun's going down for supper. Gosh, I, I think my mom would probably be, be uh, up in front of Child Protective Services. Well, that in abuse, a lot of people didn't realize back in that time frame, you know, especially East Tennessee, I would imagine. I know certainly Kentucky, there were many times you just had to go on out there and get your own switch because you're going to get it when you get back in the door. And especially where I grew up, Bourbon County here in Kentucky, you know, if you acted out at school, that always got back home to your mom before you got back home off the school bus. And and then you're in trouble for somebody else having to tell her. So like you said about the child neglect, the abuse would have applied too, but you know, we didn't act up back then. Oh, absolutely. And and David, you mentioned something. I, you know, I think we have this thing in medicine right now where it's called patient-centered medicine, which seems axiomatic, right? It should be about the patient, not the doctor or the nurse. And I think it's analogous to community-oriented policing. I remember as a kid, I knew all the cops that were on the beat in my neighborhood. They knew my name. And I think that's where a lot of the law enforcement folks I work with are going back to is establishing those kind of relationships. When when I went to Winston-Salem for my first faculty position, the first thing the lead homicide detective did was get me in his car and drive me around for a day. And introduced me to a bunch of folks in the community, um, people he'd busted, people who he'd uh, worked, you know, to help uh, rectify things because they were victims. And that was really a huge impression on me was that this guy who was a fairly high up captain in that particular police force still knew everybody's name. And you know, obviously in a big city, you can't always do that. But uh, I think... Establishing trust is something that, again, is a parallel between a, a forensic pathologist and a law enforcement officer. I, I think we're in the middle of another evolution of that, and uh, I'm, I'm glad to see it happen. I think two things separated us. I've always told people the best thing that happened in policing for efficiency was a police car, is that you could get to point A to point B, but as soon as that window rolled up, we lost. And, and, uh, and it's hard, and then you had call volume. But the other thing, too, is I keep coming back to the media it's almost like life imitating art is sometimes I look at our culture and policing and wonder how much of this is people seeking to be what they saw at showcase cinemas last week. That's real. I think I did. There's a, and I, maybe somebody can do some more research other than me on that, but 
in the end, I think we were uh, like uh, we've talked about before with a lot of the things we've seen in the year and a half, and today is in 2021. Is uh, what we're hearing from most of the community is, hey, just tighten it up a little bit, get to know me. Don't don't be a uh, in a vacuum. Don't don't be somewhere I can't approach. And I, and uh, I know as my career pro- progressed, that was my favorite thing was going back to those anchoring points and working inside the community. And, and you said it best, knowing people by the name. That that's a cool thing. Well, and I think, uh, you know, I, I'm an educator first and foremost. I always wanted to be that English teacher, and, and I still have a little bit of that in me. And so with the advent of CSI and a lot of the other programs that that have raised awareness of professions and yet have also torn us up in that sense, I get a lot of queries from high school and college students about becoming a forensic pathologist. And I walk this fine line between I want to support your enthusiasm. I want to welcome you years from now as a fellow member of this profession, but I also want you to know what you're getting into. So if you've read a bunch of Case Carpetta novels and think that you as a medical examiner are going to be arresting people and diving into inky dark waters to rescue victims, that's not what we do. You know, if you've watched the TV shows and you want to become a doctor because you think you're going to hang out in a lounge and drink coffee and and chat people up you know that that's not what doctors do you know it's, it's funny these these misperceptions one of my favorite silly movies is so i married an axe murderer with mike myers and there's a i forget the name of the actor who's a, a detective and he he goes to alan arkin who's his chief of detectives and he goes you know i'm just really disappointed i, I became a cop so that i could you know, hang on to a helicopter's landing gear and chase the bad guys and stuff. And I, I haven't gotten to do that yet. Whereas I, I think mature physicians and law enforcement officers know that the real sweet spot is not hanging from a helicopter or, you know, rescuing a fictional character. It's, it's those moments, again, coming back to personal relationships and trust. It's those moments where we've worked together to make sure that justice is done. And, and I think as Americans, we would all agree. I mean, I've said this time and time again, my second worst professional nightmare is I screw up and the bad guy walks. My first professional nightmare is I screw up and some innocent person gets accused of something they didn't do. Uh, and I've actually been cross-examined on that in court. And it's like, yeah, I stand by that. I am an American. My grandparents came to this country to escape a system that would shoot 99 innocent people to get that one guilty party i'd rather i'd rather live in a community that gives me the benefit of the doubt amen well i'll tell you uh first of all up until today that movie was our best recruiting tool in policing we'll have to find another one now because the helicopter <laughs> game is is out you know you can only bs people for so long but i'll tell you what it now would be a good time actually kind of to because you touched on it and let's shift into it for these people that are interested in the career and and i can tell you we have a large listener base of people that really consider things inside the criminal justice field and and inside investigations a lot. What would you tell somebody that was interested in anything where you've been, how to prepare, what mindset to have, what they could do? What would be some advice you'd give that person? Well, first of all, you know, as I mentioned before, it it requires going to medical school. And I'm going to give a free piece of advice, a, a trade secret. Hey, you know there's more to the story, so go download the next episode like the true crime fan that you are. The Murder Police Podcast is hosted by Wendy and David Lyons, 
and was created to honor the lives of crime victims so their names are never forgotten. It is produced, recorded, and edited by David Lyons. The Murder Police podcast can be found on your favorite Apple or Android podcast platform, as well as at murderpolicepodcast.com, which is our website and has show notes for imagery and audio and video files related to the cases you're going to hear. We are also on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, LinkedIn, and YouTube, which has closed captions available for those that are hearing impaired. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe for more and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your podcast from. Subscribe to the Murder Police Podcast and set your player to automatically download new episodes so you get the new ones as soon as they drop. And please tell your friends. Lock it down, Judy.